0: When Pastor Sean and Pastor Caleb were selecting passages for who's going to preach what, they landed on Genesis 11, which is going to be our text today, which is the story of the Tower of Babel, and they asked me to preach it. I'm thankful that they uh, had faith, had trust in me to preach this text. It's an important text. It stands between uh, the first 11 chapters of Genesis and obviously the rest of Genesis up to chapter 15. And it is the hinge text that pulls in together themes from the first 11 chapters. And then you see echoes of it throughout the rest of Genesis and indeed the rest of Scripture. Now I'm thankful for Pastor Sean and Caleb because they could have given me any text. One, they could have given me the genealogies that surround this text. Uh, which have all sorts of wild names that uh, I would probably flub. Uh, so I'm thankful that Pastor Sean took on that one last week. Uh, but... In, in seriousness, I mean, I am a pastoral resident. Uh, these are two seasoned pastors who have preached numerous times, and they could have just as easily said, Brian, we're going we're to take the series of Genesis, and then you just preach whatever passage you want. But they asked me to preach, you know, we're preaching from Genesis, so Brian, you're one of the preachers? Grab it. Uh, so I'm thankful for these, uh, for these men in that, in that way as well. But the story of the Tower of Babel, it is... It is a daunting story. It is an incredible story. There is so much happening in this text that makes the story more than just a kid's story. Now, it is a kid's story. I'm glad that we teach it to our kids. I was at, uh, I was around my niece yesterday, and I was sort of practicing for uh, the sermon a little bit. And she came in at one point and heard me say, and God confused their languages. And right away, she had a listening ear, and she said, I know that story. That's from the Tower of Babel. So I'm glad that we teach our kids these stories because I think that's, that's one of the reasons why I think this series in Genesis that Pastor Sean and Caleb are going through is so rich because these are stories that we've heard previously in our lives. Even if you're not a church person, you've probably heard many of these stories like Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve and the story of Noah, the Tower of Babel. And then we come to it, we come, we come to these stories and we look in them And we look upon them, we read them from the Word of God, and and we illuminate it, and the Holy Spirit illuminates them to us, and we hear them again, perhaps for the first time in a different light. So I'm excited. I'm looking forward to going through the Tower of Babel with you. And indeed, there are, again, there are so many themes that we're going to see through the rest of Scripture. It's my hope today that we're able to pull some of those together, and we're able to connect it to the rest of Scripture. And so then when we look at the Word of God, we say, this was indeed written by God, and we can have confidence in His Word. So what we're going to see in this text, three themes. And these are going to be the three themes that, we, that, that I'll preach from. Number one is in this text, we see who we are. We see ourselves in this text. And then importantly, we see who God is. And then we also see a third thing our response, God's response. What is the response to us, to God, and the responses? So, those are going to be the three themes that we journey through in Genesis chapter 11. And it's just nine verses, one to nine. So, before we get started, we need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit for his help. Let's do that. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you. For gathering us here this morning, we thank you that we can be together in one room. We can sing your praises. Father, I thank you for those who are watching online right now. I pray that uh, we would, whether we're here, whether we're online, that we would turn our eyes to Jesus. And may you make the things of earth grow strangely dim. May you take away the distractions, and may we hear your voice. May the Holy Spirit help us to hear your voice, and help us to see Jesus as we study through Genesis 11. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you grab your Bibles, look at chapter 11, and I'm going to read the nine verses for us, and I'm going to allow, just because it's only a few verses, I'm going to add some color as we talk, or as we read. So let me read. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now notice that they're migrating from the east. We recall in previous sermons, whenever we see that that, that word east and a migration from the east, it's always associated with moving away from God's blessing. Moving away from God's perfect creation. So the author, Moses, who wrote this, wants us to know that. These people are moving away from God's blessing. Picking up in verse 3. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Bitumen is just a tar. Uh, It's like a tar-like substance. We'll see bitumen again in Genesis 14, verse 4. In the valley of Siddam, there are bitumen pits that were there. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were fleeing Abraham, Abram, some of them fell into these bitumen pits and perished. Again, And you're going to see bitumen again in Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, when Moses' mother takes that reed basket and she covers it with bitumen so it will float in the river. So bitumen is a tar-like substance, so that's what they're going to use as a building material. Continuing on, verse 4, then they said, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its tops in the heaven and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. That term, children of man, again, key to the text because it's tying in Adam, the sin of Adam. These are the children of men who are doing these things. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of, of what they will do note one people one language there's a unity that he's talking about here they are together in this also note there are no other names in this passage right which is very odd it's striking because in chapter 10 we have lists of names and nations and people groups in chapter 11 we later on sorry in chapter 11 in verse 10 we have the descendants of shem terah's descendants we have all sorts of names but in this text no names one people, one language. Verse 7. Come, let us go down and, there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Note, that's God speaking. Let us. Let us. Who's the us? Now, there are some different opinions on who that us might be. I tend to land on that is, uh, that is pointing us to the plurality of persons within the deity. We serve a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He says, let us go down and confuse their speech. Carrying on, verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, it was named Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the first section of the text, the the one I said where we're going to see that this is us, it's in these first four verses of chapter 11. We're going to see how sinful men and sinful women take what God has created perfect and good and turn it into something that is sinful and self-serving. Look at how he created us. Good. We read it in verse one. He says, "He." So we read that there is one language. The people had one language. We see that he created us with one language, with the same words. Right. We see this oneness again, as we mentioned in verse chapter in verse six. One people, one language. This oneness points back to God's original intent for humanity. And that was to exist and communicate as a unified people. And when there's, in these first few verses, we see yet another example of God's goodness in creation. And that's in our ability to think and be innovative. Human's ability, our ability, my ability, your ability. To think, be creative, to uh, be innovative. Right? We see this in verse 3. They say, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bitumen, they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. God created humans to stand out against the rest of creation. And not only do we as humans have the ability to use language, and we are the only creation of gods to be able to use language. Boys and girls, I don't know if you have a dog or a cat or some other sort of animal at home, but chances are they can't speak language. Maybe they can bark, maybe they can chirp and tell you that they're hungry, but they can't tell you with words, I'm hungry, feed me. Humans are the only creature, the only created being that has language. And we also have the ability to create, to be innovative, to make. So here in this story, the technological advancements they invented are good. Having a better brick was good, being able to build a more secure secure and bigger structure, that is a representation. That is pointing to the good, but we see how they turn that good into evil very quickly. Incidentally, we do that too in our culture and society, don't we? We take things that can be good, like an iPhone or a computer or internet, it's fantastic to be able to get, have information at the tip of our fingers. It's fantastic to be able to talk to anybody we want to, but we can take what is meant to be good and turn it into something evil very, very quickly. And so despite, despite all the good that God had intended, as we see time and time again in Genesis, that it goes wrong. God's original intent gets bent. And we're reminded of this in verse 2 as the people, as this one people, migrate east. Now, we humans, we take the blessing of unity, we take the blessing of one language, of innovation, and we use it to disobey God and turn ourselves into the center of attention. In other words, we aim to make ourselves God. Now, verse 4 Look at it with me. This really is humanity in a nutshell. It says this, Come, let us build ourselves a city and tower with its tops in the heaven and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. Now there are two ways in this one verse that we see the sinful heart of men and the sinful heart of women. First it's this, it's disobedient. It's disobedient. Their intent to not be dispersed, to not be scattered over the face of the earth is in direct disobedience to God's. He twice blessed humanity in Genesis already. We've seen those. Do you remember them? In Genesis chapter 1, God in the garden says to Adam and Eve pre-fall, He says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then again, after Noah gets off the ark with his family, after the flood, God blesses them once more and he says to Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. God's intent for humanity was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But instead, our sinful hearts are disobedient. They had a sinful agenda. They wanted to build the city so that they wouldn't be scattered over the face of the earth. In other words, they worked to do what they wanted to do. Now, we see the hearts, the sinful heart of men and women in a second way in verse 4. And this time it's in their motivation to build the city and tower. They say, come let us make a name for ourselves. Name. Name. Name is an important theme, not only in this narrative, but throughout the entirety of Scripture. Right? Instead of waiting on God to make a name for them, or instead of building a city and tower to make a name for God, they do it so they can make a name for themselves. Humanity was created by God for God. Right? We exist We exist. This is why we exist. We exist to bring glory to God. And instead of doing what they were created to do, they wanted to bring glory to themselves by making a name for themselves. Folks, this is us. This is who we are. We are naturally disobedient and we are naturally self-serving. Instead of letting God be God, we want to be God. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told who to be. We don't want to be told how to use our finances. We don't want to be told what it is we need to do with our time. And the list goes on and on and on. Basically, we want to be the center of attention. And our sinful nature take, works to take away from others, and it works to take away the attention from, and glory from God. Now, Paul Tripp captures this well in a story Uh, he tells a story when he was a kindergarten teacher and one of the uh, students in his classrooms her name was Susie now Susie's mom wanted to throw her a big party in the class so she asked can I can I come in and transform the classroom so when the when all the kids went out for recess do you guys remember recess Recess was awesome. It's coming back, I think. So, recess. All the kids go out to recess. And when they do, the mom comes in with her friends, and they transform this classroom into a beautiful castle scene. And then all the kids come back from their, from their recess, and they're, they're just in awe the classroom's been transformed. And there's a big banquet table in the center of the classroom. And on each chair, there's a little balloon with a little balloon inside of it. And on each chair, there is a little party bag with little party favors and snacks. All but one chair. One chair at the end of the table had a big, giant pile of presents on it. And on that chair, there was tied a whole bouquet of balloons. And everybody was having a grand time. Everybody except for one little boy. Little Johnny. Little Johnny was up at the other end of the table. And little Johnny didn't like what was happening. He didn't like that all the attention was focused on Susan. And he looked at his little party bag and he looked at the big pile of gifts that she had and he got a little bit, what we call, huffy. He just started getting huffy. And every time Susan opened one of her presents and everybody clapped and was excited about it. Not Johnny. Johnny sat there in his little chair and eventually his little (sighs) got louder and louder until eventually little Johnny started becoming the center of attention and not little Susan. Little Johnny was about to ruin and spoil the entire party. Now that is until one of the moms saw what was happening. She walked over to little Johnny. She got down on his level. and She looked him square in the eye and said, Johnny, it's not your party. It's not your party. So often in life, we want to make this life about us. We want it to be our party. This theology, now while the story is cute, the theology of that should be ringing true with us. This life is not our party. It's about God. And so often, we try to make it about us. So we need to hear that truth again and again. It's not Your party. Folks, the hearts of the people on the plains of Shinar who came together to make a name for themselves, to have their own party, they worked to steal God's glory. Folks, their heart is the same heart that we have. It's the same heart that you have, it's the same heart that I have. That's what we were born with. We are naturally disobedient and we want to make a name for ourselves. We want the glory to be upon us, both vertically with God and horizontally with others. Now, who am I talking to? Certainly, I'm talking to unbelievers. Certainly, I'm talking to Christians. But let me just specifically address Christians here. Why do we so often, as Christians, become glory thieves? Why do we so often want to make a name for ourselves? I think it's because we forget. We forget the name that we have been given. And we forget whose name it is that we carry with us. If you have placed your faith in Christ, then you have been united to Him, and you have been adopted into his family. In Christ, we possess a new identity. We have been given a new position and a new heart and indeed a new name. We don't need to make a name for ourselves because we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High and we have the privilege of calling God our Father. And our Father wants to lavish blessings upon us. That's who we are in Christ. We were in Adam, and through Christ, we can call God Father. Now that is a tremendous, tremendous blessing. And we're going to, Pastor Sean is going to preach on that blessing in just a few weeks from Genesis chapter 12, when God tells Abram, and I read what he says. He says, He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God will make Abram's name great. And he promises to Abram that his offspring, he will make their name great. The very things that the people at the Tower of Babel were trying to do, make their name great. But God will make people's names great. And we know that Jesus came in the line of Abraham as a fulfillment to that promise. And he was given the name above all names. So that by calling on the name of the Lord, you will be saved and adopted into the family of God as a son or as a daughter. And as such, you will be an heir through God. Christian, we have been given a royal name. We don't need to be glory thieves because we have been given the promise of a kingdom and we have all that we need in Christ so we can live each day with confidence that God is working for our good. and We can be strengthened because by the gospel we are children of God. So that's the first theme. This is us. This is us. We were sons and daughters of Adam. We spoke the language of sin. We were disobedient. We were glory thieves. That's who we were. But now we're going to see in the next few verses, if this is who we are, well, folks, this is God. We are going to see this is God. Starting in verse five. One of the first things you'll notice, boys and girls, I have a question for you in a second. One of the first things you'll notice, starting in verse 5, is how many times the name of the Lord appears. The Lord, all in capitals there. It's not a coincidence that in the first four cha- first four verses of this text, we see that the people want to make a name for themselves. And now, by by sheer frequency, we see the Lord's name appear. So boys and girls, how many times, how many times do you see the name, the Lord, appear in these texts? I know there's a bunch in Centennial Hall watching. You guys do it too. This is not a rhetorical question. This is count them up. Starts with, f, ends in I've. Someone? Adults? Give it to me. Five, thank you. I don't know who did that, but if I had a chocolate bar, i give it to you. Five times. That's how many times. It's frequent. When, you want, when, you, when you're looking at a text in the Bible and sometimes you want to know what's this text about, see how many times a word appears. And that's often how, what the text is about. I also want you to notice what name of God is being used here. Notice that Lord is in all capitals. Whenever we see the name Lord in all capitals, we know that it's the name Yahweh. And Yahweh is the personal covenantal name of God, right? It's clear in this passage, we're not dealing with a God who is far removed and uninterested in creation. Rather, we're dealing with a God who is involved in creation, and particularly with the people in it. Now, the theological term for this is the word imminent. Imminent. Imminent means that God is involved and He is remaining in creation, and this is the idea that is really the main thrust of this passage. It's the very center. It's the very heart of this passage. It's the theological center. Do you see it there? It's in verse 5. It says this. This is the theological center. And the Lord came down. If you want a verse to study later on in your week, in your, in your, devo- in your daily devotions just meditate on that verse for a moment and think about how theologically rich that verse is. And the Lord came down. In other words, and Yahweh, Yahweh, the personal God you can personally count on, He came down. Now there is also some uh, embedded comedy. There's some embedded comedy in this phrase as well. And it was meant to have comedy. in in the original language. Think about it. Isn't it funny? At least I think it's funny that these men and women put all their effort, all their technological advancements, everything that they have into building this monument to themselves, this massive structure. This is humanity in all its glory. There it is. And what does God have to do to see it? He's got to come down to see it. He's got to come down because it's so small and so puny in his sight, he had to stoop to see it. Let us go down to see the structure of man. There's comedy in this, phrase, in this passage as well. But now the phrase, the Lord came down. Now it's found five other times in the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch. The Jews would call the Torah. The first five books, it's found five times. Now I'm not going to go through... All five of those passages with you. But let me just give you two. I think they're key to this text. The first one after this is in Exodus 19. It's when God comes down. It says, And the Lord came down on the Mount Sinai. On Mount Sinai, God comes down and delivers the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. The second time is in Exodus 34. It says, And the Lord came down in a cloud. You remember this text? He comes down and meets Moses in a cloud and he puts Moses in the cleft of the rock and he passes, he allows his glory to pass by him and as he's passing by Moses in the cleft of the rock, God says this of himself, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These are the words that God calls himself. And so indeed this phrase, and the Lord came down, truly becomes the focal point of not only this passage, but the entirety of the Bible, as we find in redemptive history in the person of Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in the the book of Philippians about Jesus, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and entered our world as a man. John says in in chapter 1 verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul says again in Galatians that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And Jesus came down and He dwelt among us. When God came down in the person of Jesus Christ, it wasn't to see the city and tower that the children of men had built and to deliver His righteous judgment. When Jesus, the Son of God, came down, as we read in the New Testament, it was to come and offer Himself as a living sacrifice for the sins of humanity as He bore the righteous judgment that we deserved. Think about that. The same God that came down to see the Tower of Babel, is the same God who loves me and who loves you personally enough to send His Son to die in our place, to bear the punishment of sin on a cross, so that by calling on the name of Jesus, we can be saved. Now that is a merciful and gracious God. Folks, if this was us, then this is God merciful, and gracious, and kind, and loving. So we've seen in this story then that this is us, sinful, disobedient, self-centered, self-serving, full of self-love, and we've seen that this is God, all-powerful, sovereign, above all things, yet imminent, personal, involved in creation. So if this is us and this is God, then what is to be the response? Man, man, God's response. Let's look at the response in this passage, and then let's look at the response in light of the rest of Scripture. So God's response first to sinful man. In verse 6, we see it. After coming down to see what these one people with one language are doing, he determines that there is a problem. There is a problem in their engagement of sin, and there is going to be a continuing problem with their sin, and their sin is going to continue to grow and grow. There's no stopping the bounds of sin. And so in a demonstration of His perfect wisdom and His perfect power, He issues the perfect judgment on these people by simply confusing their language. And in one act, in one act, By by confusing their language, they were divided into nations, and clans, and tongues, the many people groups that Pastor Sean preached about last week in chapter 10. And what's one of the results of the language being confused? They were dispersed. They were scattered. The very thing that they were hoping so desperately to avoid, God accomplishes His will in one decisive act. There is punishment for disobedience. Folks, when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that is a powerful prayer. We are asking God to come down and apply His will to earth. Thy will be done. There are consequences, major consequences for our world, if thy will would be done. That's what's happening here. God's will is being done. He punishes them. He confuses their language and they're dispersed. Never again to unite. Until this, even today, we are living in the ramifications of that sin now. The sinful hearts of men that separated them are, is the same sinful hearts of men and women now that keep us separated. Punishment for their disobedience. Now, I think we have to talk about punishment and judgment. Now, as unpopular as those topics are, because it's right here in our text. It's right there. We have to talk about punishment and judgment. Now, because they disobeyed, it was their disobedience that led God to rightly judge them. Now I think it's worth noting the timing of God's judgment. God didn't punish punish them the moment they concocted that scheme to let's make a name for ourselves. He could have. He didn't punish them when they baked, they they pulled that first brick out of the oven and it was baked thoroughly. He could have. He didn't punish them when they first laid the little bit of foundation. When did he punish him them? You see it in verse 8. After confusing their language, it says that they left off building the city. They had already built the city. They were already in mid-construction. These people were operating under the condemnation of God, but only for a time. They were operating and they were completely oblivious to what God had commanded for them. Now I can't help but wonder how many people, how many nations, how many religions in our world today live their lives in complete disobedience to God and because they've suppressed the truth in their hearts that's been written on their hearts that is, that is plain to them. They l- continue to live with complete impunity and assume that everything's okay because the sun is still shining and the city and the name that they're building for themselves keeps getting bigger and bigger. So often the world confuses God's common grace and His kindness with approval for their sin the people, at ta- the, the people at the Tower of Babel, they learn the hard way. And they suffer the consequences for their sinful action. And one day, whether we die and we stand before God, but one day Jesus is going to return. And He is going to come and judge the living and the dead. And He will come to judge humanity. And it will only be those who place their faith in Jesus who will be spared the wrath and punishment for all of eternity. That's why we're so thankful for the gospel. We are so thankful for the gospel because in the gospel we find hope. Hope Hope that the story of Babel, hope that our story doesn't end the way it does here in Genesis 11. And that we are fulfilled, that we. I lost my spot. Let me go. Let me... The gospel brings hope, it brings a conclusion to the story. The story could end with wrath and separation and confusion, but rather, in the gospel, the story can end in confidence, in clarity, and in eternal life. Now, there are two things. Two final things we need to see from the Bible that completes the story of Genesis 11 and they, are for, and they are fulfilled by a triune God through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. The first is this. In verse 8 and in verse 9, we read that God the Father confused their language so that they were dispersed and they were scattered over the face of the earth. It was sin that scattered the children of men. But we read in the gospel of John, you can look it up later, John 11:51 to 52. I'm going to read it and listen to how the story of Babel appears in this verse. It says this: Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, speaking of the Jews, the nation of Israel, but also to those gathered, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Where sin separates, the gospel gathers. God the Son is going to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The gospel is for all people. Where sin separates, the gospel gathers. Secondly, in verse 9 of our text, God confused the language because of sin. Sin brings confusion. But by grace, as Pastor Sean read earlier in chapter 2 of Acts, where, where sin brings confusion, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit brings clarity. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out onto the people from many nations And they heard the gospel in their own language and were once language divided. God united the nations in one house with Christ as its head by the working of the Holy Spirit. We see at Pentecost that the gospel is for all people who believe in Jesus Christ. And so that by placing our faith in Christ, we are declared righteous before God the Father And one day, all believers, regardless of ethnicity, social status, gender, or language, will be one in Christ Jesus and heirs according to the promise. We will come together in a reversal and separation and confusion at Babel, and we will be gathered together to worship together our God. I want to read the passage that Sean read earlier from Revelation 7, verse 9 and verse, to verse 11. As you listen, you'll hear the Tower of Babel echo through this passage. I have one question. This is I'm going to leave the question with you. Are you going to be there? Are you going to be there? Let me read. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom and thanksgiving, and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is us, sinful hearts. Folks, this is God, and He offers us eternal life through His Son, Jesus. What a God we serve. Amen.